Today we're digging into the latest on Russia, oil, and the price of gas. Motley Fool Money starts now. I'm Chris Hill, joined by Motley Fool Senior Analyst Bill Mann. Thanks for being here. Hey, Chris, how are you? I'm looking forward to the latest edition of Where Are We Now with Oil and Gas? And let me start with this. The U.S. House of Representatives uh, voted overwhelmingly to ban imports of Russian oil, natural gas, and coal into the United States. Um, Whether their colleagues in the United States Senate take up the bill remains to be seen. Um, Regardless, how important is this industry for the Russian economy? It is almost everything for the Russian economy, and it is definitely mostly everything for, I I would describe the Russian economy uh, as as, as being mafia-esque in how it it, it is structured, and the very core is the oil and gas, the extractive industries in Russia. So funding for the government and funding for the elements of the country that are most important to uh, to Vladimir Putin come almost exclusively from the oil and gas industry. Despite the fact that I, I think the stat I saw is um, we get 3% of our oil uh, from Russia. Um, that didn't stop the price of gas increasing 49 cents a gallon in a single week. It is the largest one-week spike since Hurricane Katrina. Um, That's the ripple effect here. What is the ripple effect of what we're seeing play out in Ukraine um, for people uh, and economies in Europe? So uh, the natural gas uh, price in Europe that matters the most is called the TTF price, which is the price of natural gas as it's delivered to uh, to Rotterdam in the Netherlands, which is which is the primary depot. And uh, as of earlier this week, it was up one thousand three hundred percent year over year. The prices have come down very sharply since then, and you know as we were recording, they were down only. Uh, I guess you can say only 700% on, on year over year, came down pretty sharply this week. Um, and I think it really has to do, I mean, we remember in economics, economics classes, the concept of the, you know, of, of the J curve. And we have got, we've, we, we have had a disruption in the form of the elimination of, you know, of, of, of oil and gas uh, as a product or as a threat even. Uh, and, we're getting ready to come into a new, you know, into a new synthesis, and I don't, I don't know if the synthesis is better, uh, but the pricing has come down pretty sharply in the last couple of days. I've never taken an economics class in my life. What is the J curve? <laughs> you faked it so well. The J curve is essentially the you know the disruption of a you know of 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 a status quo which causes a drop of some form and then you know and 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 then you move to a new place in terms of pricing in terms of demand those types of things to get off that topic as quickly as humanly possible. No, that's, no, that's no. That's a, but, yeah. uh, you know educate, amuse, and enrich. That's our motto, right? Um, or it was once upon a time. <laughs> that's right. Uh, one of the headlines this week is U.S.-based companies like McDonald's, Coca-Cola, and Starbucks closing up shop and suspending operations in Russia. On Wednesday, 
in Russia. The Legislative Commission approved measures that essentially paved the way for the nationalization of property in Western companies that are that are leaving. Um, so, you know, I I read that, I hear that, and I try to wrap my head around um, the Russian government taking possession of a lot of McDonald's and Starbucks. <laughs> um, uh, although, at least in the case of Starbucks, uh, I think there are more Starbucks in South Carolina than there are in all of Russia. Um, but the larger point to me is uh, foreign investment. Like, is this the end or the beginning of the end of foreign investment in Russia? If Western companies think there's a chance that this could happen? I don't believe there is. Now, keep in mind that the, that, that the Western companies, let's take McDonald's, for example, which is closing about 800 restaurants in Russia. They are almost all company owned. So, uh, honestly, what is, what is the Russian government or their successor company going to do? They're, going to, they're not going to come in and have really access to McDonald's. They've just got space. So we have seen dislocations in the past where, where people have pulled entirely out of an economy. Iran is one. Cuba is one. Vietnam was one. But you go to Vietnam now, and every Western brand you can, you, you, you can uh, conceive of is there. So, yes, this is something that's happening. I would not view this as the end of Western investment in Russia at all. Russia is still a market of 150 million people, and that matters. That matters in the long term. In the, in the short term, these companies are voting with their consciences, if you will, and, and, and getting out of the market. But there's always this such a delicate balance between making sure that you're doing uh, the moral thing and, you know, and making sure that you're not actually harming your own company in a grievous way in the process. I'm not asking you to predict uh, what Vladimir Putin does next. I am That's curious. Good. <laughs> I am curious, however, um, where do you think the next couple of weeks go? What, what are you watching to give you an indication? Because I think that, you know, what most, if not all of us are hoping for is an end to this conflict and um, a return to normalcy in terms of relations and, and hopefully uh, some rebuilding of Ukraine. Yeah. Um, short of that, what are the things you're keeping your eye on? Well, one is the oil and gas policy in this in this country, and I was very heartened to see this morning the uh, the U.S. Uh, Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm. She brought some real, like you know, Michigan logic and real, you know, and reality to the situation when she went. She was at an oil and gas conference, and she said, "Look, you know, we need we need to work together." You know, to the oil and gas companies. Yes, our future is absolutely going to be less dependent on hydrocarbons than it is now. But we need to come up with a way so that we can fill the bucket in the U.S. to make sure that our energy needs are not disruptive. And and I, I was really heartened by that, Chris, because it 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 tells me that there is actually an avenue for an industry that has been. I mean. 
they've been demonized in a lot of ways, and people are starting to talk about windfall profit taxes. Well, you know, almost $170 billion of capital has been lost through bankruptcy in the oil and gas industry since 2015. This is this is an industry that has been, in some ways, brought to its knees. So, yes, I don't think that demonizing the U.S. the U.S. oil and gas industry uh, is actually helpful at this point. So that, to me, was something that was very pragmatic, very heartening. I've seen very many pragmatic discussions happening in Europe, uh, and I hope that they continue because because obviously when when you cut off a massive component of not just the oil and gas industry, but other extractive industries, other markets. There's there's pain to be you know to be had in you know across the board in places that we we might not expect. So that was really heartening to me that that's, that that conversation is taking place in that way. Last thing, and then I'll let you go. Um, at least once a year, we have an earnings season that. Uh, involves some type of, uh, usually it's a weather event of some sort. And uh, there will be companies that will come out on their earnings report, on the conference call, and they'll talk about the impact of that. And there's almost always one company that tries <laughs> to use that as cover, and it doesn't hold water at all. Like we all just, as investors collectively go, uh, that was a weather, weather event in California, and your entire base of operations is in New England. I'm not really sure how the two are connected. Um, all of that is set up to this. Um, I know that global supply chain uh, challenges are very real. Um, it seems like this is one more large event that is not helping in that regard. When you look at supply chains, is there an industry or two that is more greatly impacted by uh, the oil and gas industry in Russia than others? It's interesting that you ask me that question because I think some of the areas where we're going to see a fair amount of pain are some of the same industries that felt a lot of pain during the COVID shutdown. I think restaurants are really, really in for it, not just in supply chain availability, but then the cost of raw materials and the cost of distributing it throughout throughout their networks. I think it's going to be extreme. And so companies, and these are companies that I, you know, that I adore. Obviously, McDonald's has already made its decision, but Domino's Pizza, you know, is, is I think, uh, in for in for it a little bit. You know, when you ask that question, I, I really think that we're going to be in a little bit of a 2020 environment again, where every time a company said, oh, yeah, COVID's impacted us, you said, oh, yeah, of course it has. Maybe there was a little, you know, a little bit of, you know, the, the boy who cried wolf there. But I think this is going to be another one of those scenarios in which in which investors really ought to think about giving their companies a bit of a pass when they say there are some real pressures that we have had no opportunity to be able to counteract in the short term. I know you want me to call somebody out. Like I heard, I, I heard that loud and clear, but I think a little bit of grace is going to go a long way in this situation. I want you to call people out only when they deserve to be called out. So Fair. I appreciate the perspective <laughs> that no, this is um, this is something that pretty much everyone is going to and deserves a pass on. Yeah. Well, we can come back after the fact and say, ah, maybe 
maybe maybe you didn't get to quite claim that 98% of your earnings came from, you know, were impacted by Russia, but yeah, but but there will be time. Bill man, thanks for being here. Thanks, Chris. As I mentioned before, Russia only provides about 3% of our oil supply. So why are we seeing such a major impact on gas prices? For more, here's Ricky Mulvey. A surge in oil prices can make any investor sweat. Today, we're looking at some of the historical context, why shutting off one relatively minor supplier of oil to the United States is leading prices to skyrocket. Joining me now is Motley Fool senior analyst Nick Seipel. Nick, the United States imported about 700,000 barrels of crude and petroleum products a day from Russia last fall. That's only 3% of our consumption. So how did we get to a point where cutting off this relatively minor supplier has such a significant impact on prices? Sure, Ricky. Well, well, thanks for having me. I think you know to look at what's going on with oil prices, we really need to zoom back a, a few years. As I'm sure a lot of people know, the oil market is notoriously a boom and bust industry. I think the oil market may have invented uh, the term boom and bust. Um, but we've really uh, the past couple of years really reached the bottom, the bust um, of the oil market. 2020, most folks are familiar, oil prices went negative. A very highly publicized uh, headline there. 2020 was also the record. Uh, year in the history of the oil and gas industry for bankruptcies. Obviously, when folks aren't making money by producing oil and gas and businesses are going bankrupt, they're going to invest less money in producing oil and gas, pulling oil and gas out of the ground, which we saw in 2021. 2021 was the lowest year uh, for new oil and gas discoveries since 1946. It was also, uh, in terms of capital expenditures spent on uh, looking for new oil and gas, was the lowest we've seen since 2004. So, we entered 2022, in a condition where the economy was recovering, folks were returning to travel, leaving their homes, but investments in oil production were at cyclical lows. We were already in a a situation where the market was very tight. You had some big banks projecting $100 oil even before the conflict in Ukraine. And of course, now we have one of the biggest uh, oil and gas producers in the world, Russia, involved in a conflict in Ukraine. Ukraine is also one of the main thoroughfares by which gas gets from Russia uh, to Western Europe. So um, you have these geopolitical issues coming at a time where the market was already heightened. And so um, you know things got even more tight and have been impacted. That's why you've seen oil prices shoot up as high as $150. And also, the oil market is talked about in a very general term. 3% of the oil comes from Russia. But Russia is also producing these very specific types of oils that affect our economy. Not all oil is created equal. So when you hear oil prices quoted, you'll usually hear one of two prices. So there's West Texas Intermediate, which is the US benchmark oil price, which represents a particular grade of oil. The other grade you'll hear often quoted is Brent, which is the European grade of oil. So in the US, the oil that we produce is light, sweet, crude. So that's best used for making things like gasoline. But you need heavier oils, stuff like the oil that, that Russia produces, to make things like diesel fuel. And so, uh, part of the issue is we're in this global commodity market where you know the, the price isn't set by the U.S. It's set by you know the entire world's demand. But also, just not all oil is created equal. Obviously, there's lots of demand for gasoline, but we still need to run those diesel trucks too to get uh, goods to market. And so, uh, folks are out there looking to replace the, those Russian oil supplies. That's part of why uh, you've seen the Biden administration reach out to Venezuela to try to get their exports. Um, it, increased uh, to the United States because their oil is somewhat of a substitute for what uh, we traditionally would get from Russia. 
it's tough to turn on the taps because we don't necessarily know where they are to begin with, with less oil discovery. So why is it so difficult to flip the switch right now and just start pumping oil from other countries like Saudi Arabia and the UAE? Well, well, part of it is um, is in the U.S., uh, oil and gas companies are facing the same supply train crunch that lots of other businesses are facing. So you need things like uh, pipe and steel to actually, uh, you know, run your operation. The other thing is we've seen this underinvestment um, in production for a number of years, which means there's been a reduced amount of hiring. You just don't have the people out there uh, working in the field uh, to uh, to um, Increase production. That's in the U.S. When you look, when you look abroad, even before uh, 2022, you've seen OPEC plus that that group struggle to meet its targets as far as increasing its oil uh, its oil production. They have overcomplied with cuts, is the word uh, you hear them say. And so, even before uh, this kind of issue, uh, the, the, the Russian uh, war, those countries were struggling to increase production. So you add urgency now, I don't think it changes the conditions on the ground. The last thing to say is, uh, you know, physics at the end of the day governs how these oil wells flow. You can you can try to, you know, drive more production out or, you know, some folks have called for Canadian oil companies to skip some scheduled maintenance in order to increase production in the short term. But what that, uh, the issues that creates is it hurts the production of the asset over the long term. And I think we're, we're going to need oil and gas, not just this year, but next year. And so some of the encouragement folks have to, hey, we need to increase production now, uh, could be harmful in the long term. So that's another thing to think about. Yeah, you're, you're essentially, hey, we're going to create a short-term solution by creating another long-term problem. Correct. So that's a, that's a potential um, potential issue. The other, the other thing is um, we should be mindful of as well. So when you hear oil prices quoted, you're hearing this kind of front-month oil contract. What's what's oil going for today? But, but what oil companies are looking at when they choose to produce is what what's the price is going to be in the future and if you look in the past week or so the the futures price for uh you know December uh 2022 oil is actually down over the course of the past week so part of the signal that the market is giving to these oil producers is not quite as bright a, a, as you see uh with that headline price you get quoted and it's not just oil producers and oil stocks that are being affected by the volatility. You've also seen a lot of supply chain effects for industries that you would think are relatively unrelated to oil. What are some of those? The way I think about it is energy is the prime commodity. So energy goes into everything we produce. And so some high energy intense uh, industries like steelmaking have been impacted. You've seen some steelmakers uh, in Europe slow down some of their production. Another industry that's, that's worth watching is, is fertilizer, so a key input. For, for fertilizer production is natural gas. And so as natural gas prices have increased, even before, again, even before 2022, you saw some fertilizer producers slow down some of their production. Obviously, fertilizer prices read through into things like food because they're a key input in, in food costs. And that has potential to get even worse because we saw, I think just this morning on Thursday, Russia announced they're going to temporarily suspend exports of fertilizer. Russia and Belarus, who's also involved in the Ukraine conflict, are two of the biggest suppliers of that um, in the world. So some of these other industries, both energy intensive industries and also industries that use oil and gas as feedstocks, um, are in a tough spot here. It's not a shocker to say that one supply chain issue can often create a contagion for others. We've heard this adage, the cure for high oil prices is high oil prices. You are hearing analysts say that the solution for this is demand destruction. But what does demand destruction actually mean for a lot of industries? Oftentimes, you'll, you'll, you'll hear analysts say, you know, at X price, you know, if oil prices go too high, you'll see demand destruction in the economy. And what that really means is that prices get so high that, that people choose not to 
drive or choose not to travel, et cetera. Um, and so it leads to just less demand for the commodity in the economy, which leads to prices going down. Obviously, prices are a function um, of supply and demand in any industry, but especially so in a commodity industry um, like oil and gas. So there's really two ways out of uh, you know of this current tightness we're in. There's either one, you increase production, which as we talked about, there are, there are some hurdles to that, both on the supply chain side and and, and that sort of thing, um, or you reduce demand. And, and that can come in the form of, we talked about companies that are producing less of, of the goods and services they make. Uh, they can come in the form of higher prices, limiting folks' you know, uh, willingness to pay, um, but but those are really the, the two way ways out uh, long term is either you increase production or you, or you decrease demand. There are some constraints uh, as we talked about on increasing production in the near term, so it may be that that demand destruction is w- what we need to get. But I will say is implicit in that is is that's a recessionary prediction. If you're predicting that there's less demand, that people are going to go around drive less, produce less, less goods, etc., the definition of a recession is two consecutive quarters of slowing economic activity. Um, you know, whenever you hear those demand destruction predictions, just understand what they are. That they're a recessionary prediction. Nick, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. That's all for today. But coming up tomorrow, a conversation with Tess Vigeland, host of the Wall Street Journal's new podcast on the future of work. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.